Welcome to the Profitable Steward Podcast with Jared Sorensen. In this series, we'll learn and explore regenerative agriculture principles. Through practices that improve soil health, animal health, and good stewardship, we are working to help you increase your productivity and profitability. Join us in learning from successful farm and ranch experts who share stories of growth from their fields to help your fields grow strong. Here is your host, Jared Sorensen. Okay, yep. So my name is Jared Sorensen. It's a pleasure to be here with you. It's an honor to have Will Harris with us. Um, I I am framing this such that whenever you meet something that is just has a lot of uh, fierce opposition, it's a really good thing. And we've definitely faced some pretty fierce opposition to get everybody on the right Zoom link at the right time. And uh, so we you know, we look forward to learning from Will Harris here today. We appreciate your time and appreciate everybody being here with us. Um, so our internet is a little bit sketchy here today. I have made Will co-host. If I go, um, well, actually, I did that just now. So if I go dark on you, we're going to go seek a better spot to find internet. I'm just hot spotting off my phone here. The The topic for today, well, actually, let's just, Let's just have a prayer like we normally do. Wendell, I haven't ever asked you to pray, but I know you're a praying man. Would you be so kind as to give us a prayer to start this thing off and even pray for the technology that it'll be adequate? Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be together today. We pray that this will be a profitable time for all of us. Help us to open our minds to learn. And we pray that the technology will work. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Wendell. I appreciate that. Um, and so um, we're going to jump in. What we're going to talk about today, regeneration is a big buzzword in uh, agriculture today. We are working to make sure that that word does not get diluted in meaning. But I would say Will Harris has been regenerative before regenerative was even attached to the word agriculture. What we want to talk today with Will about is how he has built not only regenerative systems on the farm and ranch that he owns, but a regenerative business and a regenerative community. Because as I see and um, study what he's done, he's had an impact upon the lives of not only those who work with him, but his his community at large. And so, Will, um, that's that's where we'd like to go today. How does that sound to you? Well, it's, uh, I hope our business here is as regenerative as, as you think it is. It's as regenerative as I know how to make it. And uh, time will test it, and we'll see what happens. Uh I changed the, the – uh, I am the fourth generation of my family – to own this farm, my two daughters in their thirties are the fifth, and they've got babies, five babies who are the sixth. We'll be the sixth. And uh, I took over the farm uh, after I graduated from the University of Georgia in 1976, and I ran it very industrially as a monocultural cattle operation, as my dad had run it since World War II. And the farm was was uh, profitable. We certainly were not rich people, but uh, I, I paid taxes every single year. 
and the farm was paid for. My, it had been paid for by my dad, granddad, great granddad. And I ran the farm very industrially. Uh, it was a, a monocultural cattle operation for about 20 years. In the mid-90s, I started to uh, be less enchanted with that way of managing the herd and the land. So I started changing it pretty pretty abruptly without any real plan of where I was going. And uh, it wound up being what we do today. And what we do today uh, is remarkably similar to what my great-grandfather and grandfather did 100-plus years ago. So as you um, as you kind of started down this journey, what was the catalyst for change for you? Was it profitability? Was it land degradation? Was it? Yeah, I, uh, you know, I was just really happy uh, as a young man running a monocultural cattle operation. And as I said, it it made money every year. We were not rich people, but our farms paid for and had a little money, lived comfortably. Uh, I, the excesses of that system kind of suddenly became uh, painfully apparent to me, and I just wanted to move away from it. Uh, to 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 be uh, transparent, I was I was I was probably an, an, an abuser you know, of the the technological tools. If the if the label rate said put a pint to the acre, I might have put a quart. If it said give them two cc's per hundred pounds, I might have given them three cc's per hundred pounds. But that's what that's where I ran the farm. That's where my dad had run the farm, mm-hmm. and the farm was, was again was we made made a little money every year. But I just uh, became less and less. I guess I became increasingly aware of the unintended consequences of using those industrial tools. So I started moving away from them, and I moved away from them pretty pretty quickly, pretty abruptly. And I had to find a different way of making a living. And uh, we, we stumbled for a while there. But uh, the timing was very, very fortunate. Uh, this was the mid-'90s. By the time I had the production model worked out. It was the early 2000s, and people were beginning to talk about grass-fed beef, which I had never heard of till, till probably 2000, maybe, maybe the late 90s. And we actually sold, I actually sold Whole Foods Market and Publix the first beef that they marketed as American grass-fed beef. And they, uh, the timing was very, very fortunate for me and they they bought all I could produce at a, at a level that allowed us to make money. Or again, not, not we're, we're talking about a farm here. We, we're not not rich, not rich folks' money, but we were profitable. And it actually uh, caused me a production problem with processing. I was using some small outside uh, processors. And I built I built a USDA inspected red meat slaughter plant, and then later built a USDA inspected poultry slaughter plant right. on the farm. Yeah, and are those still operational today? Yes, uh, the uh, we're, we're uh, reinvesting in the poultry plant. The poultry, the pasture poultry business has not been as good as I believed it would be. 
and I overbuilt the plant. And, uh, but uh, it's okay because I've outgrown my red meat plant. Mm-hmm. So we're uh, in, in, right, right, right now. We're in the process of remodeling the plant so that we'll be able to slaughter pigs, sheep, and goats in it as well as poultry. Mm-hmm. We'll at least downsize our poultry operation. I may, I may be out of the poultry business. I don't know. It just depends on what that plant will do when I get it get through with the renovations. Mm-hmm. What has that done for you to be able to integrate vertically versus outsourcing the processing? Well, I, I couldn't get it done outsourcing the processing. And I, that's where I started out. But the I was using very small processes, gr- great people, wonderful people. But they had, they were, uh, they only had a very limited amount of capacity they could uh, let me have. I'd call them and say, I need to process 10 head next week. And they say, well, we can do six. I said, I need 10. They said, well, I'm, I'm sorry, we can't do but six. And I, I couldn't make uh, a profit uh, operating at that, those levels. So I had to build the plant so I could maximize my uh, processing capacity, my production capacity. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, is that is that as profitable? I know the economy of scale of sending them to bigger processing plants um, generally cheapens it up, but how, how have you found that? As it, do you trickle well, down the cost to the consumer? I'm sure, but... Um, uh, there's no way you can compete with the cost of a, a huge processing plant. You know, it, it probably cost us, I really don't know, $500 or something to process uh, an animal in a, a big industrial Tyson, Cargill, JBS kind of plant can do it for uh, really the, 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 the drop, the value of the drop will pay for the processing. Yeah. Yeah, I just heard um, here in the West uh, talking to a, a fellow grass-fed beef producer, and it's 800 to to 1,000 per head now for USDA and custom exempt aren't much behind that. And so that's, uh, that's tough when margins are already thin. Um, so as you, as you started down this journey to grass-fed, um, what were some of the other changes that were made both in both in the marketing and on ground, and um, and how have those changes affected the business overall. Well, as a as a cattle producer, my dad and me for the first twenty years, we operated just a very small part of the segment. We just raised calves to you know post weaning, maybe maybe ninety days past weaning, and uh, that. Uh, I, I moved from do just that to being my own tiny, tiny, tiny little production chain. We raised them, slaughtered them, and marketed the beef, and uh, and it was uh, just a lot more complexity to it. And it uh, I went from four employees to today 170 employees. We didn't do that all at one time, but, but over the last 20 years, we've gone from Four to one hundred and seventy, and it's a uh, you know we're a vertically integrated little company. It's not certainly uh, tiny compared to the big meat companies, but it's uh, it's uh, vertically completely uh, 
almost entirely vertically integrated. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. 170 employees, are they, um, how many of those work directly within the production system and how many work outside in the uh, marketing, processing, fulfillment, delivery? Well, there's a lot of crossover, but uh, in the processing plant, there's probably 50 employees uh, in the production side out in the field raising animals is probably 25 or 30. Mm-hmm. We've got a, a store and a restaurant, and we've got cabins for lodging. You know, we, we, we do, we try not to hire much done. I've got a, a two person mechanic crew, a two person carpenter crew, a two person. Uh, through a three-person uh, groundskeeping crew and a two-person fencing crew, so we we uh, we hire very little done outside of the things we do for ourselves with employees. Mm-hmm. That's pretty neat. Um, so, how what would you say is the core to your culture to be able to to find people that are willing to work when that's Maybe one of the more challenging aspects in all industry right now. Not uh, only willing, but capable. And well, yeah, we 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 expect to train people. We don't expect them to come in here trained, ready to rock and roll. But uh, hiring people really has not been that much of a problem. Pro- probably in the processing plant is the biggest problem we have. That's just not the kind of work that everybody wants to do. But we we've got more. Uh, so we're the largest employee in the ca- in the county, and and we we have plenty of employee plenty of employee opportunities. Uh, it's uh, a lot of them are uh, people that don't intend to work here as a career. They're young people that want to come here and learn, and we welcome that. You know, when I was growing up and, and as a young man, farms typically uh, a young farmer hired. One, two, three, four, five young farmhands, and they worked together till they were old men together, and, and hopefully another generation would take over. Maybe not. And that's the way I started out, but uh, it's, it, it's it's not worked out that way. Now we welcome these young people that come here to go work a year or two, and it's just fine. We, uh, uh, I, I actually enjoy that. It, uh, they bring new ideas, and, and um, it's, 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 a, it's just been a, a good experience. That's good. Um, so kind of switching to the community, how is your business, if you say you're the single largest employer in the county, how has it affected your your neighbors, your community at large, Will? Well, let's put us at odds with some neighbors. We've increased the size of the farm, and we uh, bid against neighbors when land comes up for sale or lease, and, and that's not always uh, you know, uh, comfortable or uh, doesn't always generate warmth and, and good feelings. Uh, but as far as the town goes, uh, I think we've we we bought every house or lot or storefront except one. This this. Uh, been sold in this town in the last 15 years. We certainly don't own nearly all of it. We own more than anybody else. Mm-hmm. And when we buy it, we fix it. I don't I don't own a house I wouldn't live in. 
know, we, we sometimes I spend more fixing them than I pay for the house. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'm very pleased with the what we've done with the town. I, I, I can't say I speak for all my neighbors, but speaking for myself, I, I think it's it's been a, a, an improvement. Y'all come see us. I'd like to show you what we do. All y'all. Yeah, that's good. What would that look like to come and visit? Do you guys have um, like official tours, or I know you, you sometimes you host classes on site and things. What would be? Yeah, we got a, we got a nonprofit that I formed about two or three years ago called CFAR. It stands for Center for Agricultural Resilience. We put on training sessions, and because uh, a nonprofit, I was I was I was doing a lot of training myself, and we were losing money doing it, and, and I just couldn't afford it anymore. So we formed the nonprofit, and, and uh, people make donations to it, and we train people to to farm the way we farm. You, you can look on the website whiteoakpasses.com. It's got a schedule of what we're gonna have, when we're gonna have it. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Um, in your, let's see, the documentary, is it called 10,000 Beating Hearts? I think it's 100,000 Beating Hearts. 100,000 Beating Hearts. I was off yeah. by all the flyer there. Okay. <laughs> tell us uh, Tell us a little bit about that and the story behind that. Um, and is it is it representative as the farm? Well, we... Uh... There's a, a nonprofit called the Southern Foodways Alliance that's been uh, very uh, good to us. Very, they followed our progress, and they've uh, done a couple of documentaries on it, about 15-minute documentaries. And that's one of them, 100,000 Beating Hearts. So it's called Could. Uh, we rewrote a book. Uh, I, I guess I wrote a book that was released uh, a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it's called a bold return to giving a damn. It's a Viking random house, and uh, it, it I, I you know I, I graduated from the University of Georgia in 1976 with a degree in animal science. So writing is not something I thought I would. I never did do much reading. Certainly didn't do much writing. But uh, they uh, Viking random house hired a. Young lady to write the book. She she was charming, same age as my daughter, one of my daughters, mm-hmm. and uh, she did a real good job writing the book. It took a year, and uh, she came down here, spent a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what? Who was the book's target audience? Who would you say would benefit most from reading that? Will you know people have an interest in uh, in. Uh, changing agriculture and moving from industry, the industrial model to the the model more focused on the environment and animal welfare and and local rural communities. Okay. Yeah. So pretty much anybody that's going to be on this call, anybody that's in our contact list or listens to our podcast. um, I don't own the book yet, but I am going to order it today. And uh, education is a big part of what we do. So just some, we've kind of opened it up here. I'm monitoring the chat. If people have questions, I'll ask that for them. Um, We get the question a lot, Will, how does somebody get started? You know, you're young, you've got, they've watched you, they've watched Alan Savory. 
like I I want to do that. They might not even know what that is, but they've had a they've had a feel. And I would say it's even a calling. It's in their heart. It's written upon their heart. God's given them to do this. How would you uh, suggest they get started? I would, uh, I would say that uh, you know a, a land grant university education is not the best way to start. Yeah, that's that's what that's how I started, and I, I, don't, I don't I don't I don't recommend that as a path. That's not. I put all three of my daughters through college, but and two of them wound up working back here with me. But I don't think they're, they're using what they learned in college uh, so much. Uh, I would say that uh, I would find a farm in the ecosystem that I wanted to to be in, that it was farming the way I wanted to. That I liked what I saw. Uh, you know, that for plus that's you know animal welfare. Regenerative land management and, and rural community development—that's three things we think we're good at. And uh, but if I, th- I think if you're in the Pacific Northwest, Bluffton, Georgia is not the best place to come. I think that it is uh, ecosystem uh, intensive. I think that uh, being well, uh, uh, taking your training in a, in the in ecosystems you go and try to be that you intend to work in is probably smart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the barrier to entry from the land side? I know that um, that's one of the bigger challenges and one of the things that we hope that we can bridge that gap between those that are wanting to retire and those that are wanting to step in. But how does a, how does a young person that has nothing more than a dream get a hold of the land to do what they want to do? Well, somebody's going to have to help you. I mean, uh, you know, so that's, that's, you know, I may, you know, I may be the best cook in the world. That doesn't mean I can open a huge five star restaurant in Times Square. I mean, that's not the way that works. You need to keep requires an investment from somebody's got to got to be willing to to um, take the risk and make the investment. You know, I would, and I and I, I don't know. I've never done it. I was blessed. I inherited a farm, so I didn't have to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would. I, what I've seen work well is uh, young people who have the desire and nothing else, and maybe an old couple, old farmers that have a farm and no no one to take it over, form some kind of relationship. I've seen that work well, but uh, you know, I, I I was fortunate enough to inherit a farm, so I'm not the guy to give you advice on that. Yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. That's fair enough, and I I believe there is a way if the if you're creative. Um, I, I, I I'll tell you one that that uh, you might look at now that, now that I'm thinking about it. Uh, we our latest project is about two thousand acres of solar voltaic arrays that we're grazing. We don't own the land. I, I do own the sheep. I don't own the land. The solar company does. Mm-hmm. They're actually paying us. Uh, to to keep the vegetation down. Now we uh, we have to mow a couple of times a year because it's uh, the, the the vegetation quality is not good enough yet for the sheep to eat everything inside that. But my hope is that we'll reach a point that they we're controlling it nearly a hundred percent through grazing, and that would be uh, again if you don't have anything you can't go in business. If you don't have anything, you can't go in the automobile business or the food business or the textile business or the farming business. But if you've got the desire 
and you can work out a relationship with somebody that has the asset, then you got the makings of a of a potential deal. Yeah, that's a good way to way to be creative and think about it. Who have been your mentors along the path and your journey to getting you to where you're at right now? I'm sorry. Who have been your mentors or people that you've looked up to that have helped you on your journey, Will? Well, certainly my dad, granddad, great-granddad, they're the ones who put the farm together and worked it out, paid for it. And, and, and it, it wouldn't have been possible without them. Uh, I've learned a lot from Alan Savory, Savory Institute. Know if you, are you familiar with that? Yes. Yeah, I'm sure probably everybody on the call is. And Alan Savory's TED Talk. Um, but, yeah, yeah. We're actually, our company is actually affiliated with the Savory Institute. Yeah. And so they're there. There've been others, but but now I was so early getting into it. There was a lot more figuring it out for myself than you would have to do today. You know, we've been doing this for twenty five or so years, mm -hmm. and there were other people doing it in the country twenty five years ago, but I didn't know them, and you know, we didn't have uh, computer uh, uh, connect connectivity to each other, so. It was, uh, it, you know, I, I, I thought I was the only one on the planet doing it, but I, I was not. I just didn't have connections with those other people. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that that's good. Um, what would you say differentiates you from other grass-fed beef producers, other people that are maybe have a regenerative label? Um, is there anything that sets you apart, Will? Well, I just don't know how to answer that question. I, mean, I don't know who we're talking about and how they're doing it, and, and probably wouldn't. You know, we I don't compare myself to other grass fed beef producers. We try to be very, very transparent and uh, let people see what we do. I told you we built a, we built accommodations for people to come see us, and we we urge people to come see us and to see if you like what we do. And yeah. Generally, we can make a custom out of people that come to see us. But yeah. I'll say this. Uh, we sold about $25 million worth of product, and we ship beef to 40, or product, not just beef. We ship product to 48 states. Mm -hmm. Really don't want to. I really want to be far, far more local than that. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I do because I got to sell $25 million worth of product to make my business work. And if I have to sell it somewhere else, you know, in, in you know, the Pacific Northwest or the Southwest or New England, I will. That's not my goal. You know, I want to feed people here, and I want y'all to feed people near where you are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. That's that's the ultimate form of food security, right? I think so. Being independent. And... um. We've got a couple of questions in the chat here we'll jump into, but I've, I've been asked this question and I know it's kind of the, I don't know, the, the question gets thrown around there a lot. Can regenerative agriculture feed the world? What, what's your thoughts on that, Will? Uh, I think the earth has a limited carrying capacity. Uh, no matter how you farm, you can't feed more and more and more people in perpetuity just just 
raise more products. Uh, that's not the way that works. There's a carrying capacity. I, I don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, I'm, not, I'm not, and I'm not sure that the carrying capacity may not be greater the way I do it than it is through industrial commodity farm. I don't know. They, you can make more product per acre with uh, industrial commodity farming using GMOs and pesticides and uh, whatever fertilizers, chemical fertilizer. Yeah, but there are unintended consequences to those those things, and it's going to manifest itself somewhere. So I. Uh, you know, if the if the limiting factor is how many acres of land you got, industrial farming will beat me. Mm -hmm. If it's the unintended consequences that spin off, I might beat them in terms of how many people I can feed, or not just me. This kind of farming can feed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, on a profitability standpoint, who do you think wins? The industrial. With because I I think we pay a higher percentage of our cost. You know, they, you know, if if uh, if if industrial farming is what killed the big zone down here in the Gulf of Mexico, they didn't pay for that. Yeah, if they, if they uh, atrazine and the polar ice caps, they didn't pay for that. So yeah. the the it's probably there's more profit in the annual turnover in industrial farming than there is in what I do. But there's also more unintended consequences. Yeah, even if you remove the direct subsidies to industrial farming, would you think they could still afford to run huge feedlots, import fertilizers, do the things that they do? No, no. I mean, I, I, I don't think that. But I also think that uh, those kinds of subsidies are pretty hardwired in as long as we've got the lobbyist. Uh, exercise as much control as they exercise. So what do you think will cause a tipping point or will there be one? I, I don't know. Uh, you know I, I, I think about it a lot. Uh, and I used to think that if I, that if more and more people thought this was a good idea and went this way and more and more people would it just be, there would be a tipping point. I don't know what day, but I thought there would be. But I'm, I'm just not sure how it's going to work anymore. You know, there are so many poor people that can't afford to pay more for food. And I, I don't mean that critically. I mean, that's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. And my food costs more of direct, direct cost. I'm not talking about killing the fish in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. So, you know, I, I just don't know how this is going to wind up. I used to think that I was an early innovator and, and you know, we were ahead of most folks in changing the way food production was going to be done. I don't know that I think that anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I may just be a niche producer. Mm -hmm. and if I am, that's not what I wanted, but it's okay. I mean, it'll, it'll, you know, we'll probably be able to do it for another generation or two or more, and who knows what will happen in that amount of time. Mm-hmm. Do you think that your your system is duplica duplicatable? I mean, is it something that somebody could do in a different geographic area with success? I think it's highly replicatable. Yeah, I do. 
I don't think it's highly scalable. I think I'm about big as I need to be. Maybe, maybe a little bigger than I wanted to be. Yeah. But uh, so I don't think it's it's. I don't think it's highly scalable. I do think it's highly uh, replicatable. Mm-hmm. And uh, somebody asked, having been through all that you've been through with the vertical integrations, would you do it again? Integrating vertically, would you? Hindsight, is that something you would do again, or 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 what would you do differently? Uh, I would do it again. Uh, not that the financial result has been that astounding, but it caused two of my daughters to choose to come back. And in all likelihood, they would not have chosen to come back if I continued to, to be very industrial. Mm-hmm. And, and provided employment for a lot of other people as well along the way, too. Yeah, I think that uh, I think that we're doing. I think that right now we're doing the same thing to rural that we did to wilderness seventy-five years ago. You know, when I was a kid, I was born in nineteen fifty-four. When I was a kid, uh, you know, I used to dream about going to Africa or the Amazon or uh, the Yukon to the wilderness. And, you know, there, there's not any wilderness anymore. Not really. Maybe some private holding somewhere. But, you know, the last 75 years, we have uh, civilized through wilderness. It's just not there anymore. Mm-hmm. And 75 years from now, they may not be a rural. Meaning the urban sprawl will reach and encompass that rural? Or will the rural die off and move to the city? Well, I don't, you know, I can't tell you how it's going to happen. I think that um, it may just be just impoverishment. I mean, it's just if you, you know, I, I don't know how it is where you are, but I've traveled a good bit. And everywhere I go in rural America, I see economic decay. You know, I see uh, cities that are impoverished. And I think, I don't think that's going to get better. Not if it's depending upon agriculture, if it's tourism yeah. or mining or some other extraordinary income maybe but i think that uh i see you know i'm i'm, I'm nearly 70 and i've seen in my life agriculture uh, i've said rural america's just gotten poorer and poorer and poorer and i don't see that turning around yeah that's that's interesting that's uh in the west here i think we have other industries that support these rural communities Probably more where you're at and in the Midwest, they feel it more where it is just agricultural dependent. And so with the consolidation to larger corporate farms and ranches, that is one of the unintended consequences of of that system, right? As the communities tend to die out. Um, yeah, again, and I, I mean, can that be reversed? Can we go back to I'm, I'm sitting right in the middle of Bluffton, Georgia, right now. Bluffton, Georgia happens to be sitting right in the middle of my farm. Mm-hmm. I'm in the old courthouse, literally, one room courthouse. It's my office now. And uh uh this this time it's never had a railroad, uh never had a a, a mill or a factory, purely mm-hmm. agrarian town. And we reached the point that just about everybody in this town that works 
works for White Oak Pastures. Not quite, but just about everybody that, that lives there that works works for White Oak Pastures. Huh. And that, that's not, I'm not bragging. I'm talking about the economic decay. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, I guess you could only imagine what the community would be like if it didn't have your company to kind of be the backbone of it. Well, hell, all it had is a post office. It was open up a couple hours a day, period. Yeah. Well, to me, that's one of the reasons, Will, why we wanted to get you on as a host, because um, that is something unique about White Oak Pastures and about Will Harris, is not only that you've been able to raise quality products and feed people good food, but you've been able to revitalize a community. And um, and it might, it might be wishful thinking, it might be a dream, but that's my hope is that there could be more of this throughout the throughout the nation. Um, well, and I, I guess my message to you is that I'm not saying that what we have done here is all that wonderful, but it is pretty good. And it was done by a C student that <laughs> that did that did have a a, a, a paid-for farm, but it wasn't a it wasn't it wasn't a, 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 a bright scholar with a trust fund, and it, it can be it can be done, it can be replicated uh, over and over and over. Yeah. Um. So maybe we'll jump into some of these questions here that we have couple on the ecological side will um do you have somebody that's specifically on staff that does uh, any of your ecological monitoring uh that manages the soil fertility uh for for your operation uh we do have uh we, we're a, a savory hub and we've got um uh uh, uh, ecological out EOV ecological outcome verification by 12 15 locations on the farm that uh, some of our one of our young ladies monitors there's a procedure to that she had with some of them she went and got trained to do it mm-hmm. we, we participate in that program yeah that's good that's something we've done on our ranch as well and we're about five years into it I think this year we'll do our first or second uh, long-term monitoring sites. And have you seen any um, indications, any improvements as you've been measuring and monitoring? Absolutely. Uh, so this, this, this is what I'm about to tell you. Did not just come from savory, although it it uh, supported it. But uh, the uh, organic model on this farm has gone from a half a percent. 0.5%, one half percent to 5%, a 10x increase in organic matter. Cool. And uh, you know, organic matter, 1% organic matter will absorb a, a, about a one inch rainfall. That's 27,000 gallons per acre. Mm-hmm. So going from a half an inch, a, a half an inch absorption to five inch absorption is incredible. We get, we get about, uh, um, seventy inches of rain a year here, but some of it comes fast and hard and runs and runs off. Did you did you say seventy inches? I think it is. I'm, I'm not sure. I need to go back and look on that. But it's 50, 50 60. Uh huh. We get plenty of water. It's just that we got we don't hold it very well. Okay. And is that? I mean, I guess that probably is the opposite of what we have. You guys have leaching. 
we're in a we're in a very brittle environment here in the west and you know our listeners are anywhere in on that spectrum from brittle to non-brittle but are there i imagine there's unique challenges with that tremendous rainfall i'm about 70 miles from the gulf of mexico and we do get a lot of rain uh, but 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 we again five so organic models is is really high here and i suspect that y'all y'all soil in in the west would probably be much better than ours in general more minerals more this is an ancient seabed if you dig a well you pull up seashells uh-huh yeah yeah interesting um any other ecological changes that you've seen as you've as you've changed from more conventional to holistic and regenerative practices oh yeah a lot and i've seen a lot of species come back you know i had uh uh, I'd forgotten what dung beetles look like. We 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 worm cows multiple times per year, and uh, the cow worm was really hard on dung beetle populations, and I just had forgotten about them. Yeah, and, uh, I cut way back on the worm. I just just about don't worm anymore. We will occasionally for a hardship case. Yeah, but uh, the dung beetles came back. A lot of species came back. We see. You know, different frogs, toads, lizards, just a lot of things, uh, fireflies, a lot of, a lot more ecological activity here now. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a pretty good indication. Um, what is your definition of regenerative, Will? Restarting the cycles of nature. You know, cycles of nature would be, examples would be the, Carbon cycle, the water cycle, the mineral cycle, the microbial cycle, probably, probably dozens of cycles that we don't even recognize. And industrial farming, particularly monocultural industrial farming, breaks those cycles of nature very intentionally. Mm-hmm. And to, 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 to be in a truly working in the direction of regeneration is restarting those cycles of nature. Restarting the cycles of nature. I like that. I haven't heard it put quite that way, but uh, that's a beautiful description. And and I think should be the aim and the goal of all management and stewardship, as we call it. Um, can you speak to us a little bit about, about that term stewardship? What that means to you? How you've been able to uh, embody that and, and exemplify that to not only yourself, but to your community? Well, I think that we, uh, I think we've forgotten that the, the land and the herd are permanent. You know, we live in a society where assets are depreciated out over a year or five years or 20 years. But a herd, you know, in, in, in a farm lasts, are meant to last forever. Mm-hmm. Right, many generations, you know, the, this, this farm I'm sitting on, the, the herd, I can see out that window right now. Are perpetual, and you know we just don't have many things that are perpetual, but many many forms of wealth that are perpetual. So the land, the land, and you even said the herd is perpetual because it outlasts you. Yeah, individuals have lifespans, but the herd is perpetual. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a question in the chat here, and we. 
I know you've got a meeting after this. You good for like 10 or 15 more minutes to do some Q and a. Yes, sir. Okay. So we'll do that. Um, uh, Tom asked, will do you, or do you foresee doing any, or do you, or do you foresee doing any custom processing for other small regenerative and beginning farmers? Uh, I don't intend to. If I, if I couldn't raise, if I couldn't, if I didn't have enough for my own to slaughter, then I would economically have to do it. But I really, I don't enjoy uh, custom slaughter. Mostly because I just don't enjoy talking to people that much. You know, they, if somebody wants to kill one cow, you got to talk to them six times about it. And yeah. you know, I just don't want to do that. Um, very good. Yeah, if you were to transition an irrigated corn, soy uh, farm to regenerative, what would be the big needle movers to start with? So transitioning from corn on corn on soy to a regenerative, where do you start? Uh, what I do when I, I've, I've, I've done that in, uh, a lot. And uh, what I'll do is, uh, we, we, I'm, I'm fortunate here, we don't feed hay but about eight or ten weeks a year, typically. And uh, if I get a, a new piece of land during that eight or ten weeks, I'll take uh, one of our bigger herds of cattle. Our, our winter cabin herd's got a thousand mamas in it. And I'll uh, put them out by uh, when I... Uh, and uh, feed hay on the ground, on the wastefully, put it on mm -hmm. the ground, let them eat it, walk in it, pee in it, manure in it. And really, I call it hay bombing. You know, they waste a lot of hay, but they uh, uh, really jack up the organic matter and the microbial life of that land during that 10 week or 12 week period that we put about feeding the hay to them. And then I start uh, that we do that. That would be in like uh, Thanksgiving to to first uh, of February. Then uh, when it warm up a little bit in March, April, I I plant that with a, a mixture of warm season perennials and and some warm season annuals in it. And then I have to, I have to see what happens after that. You got after that it becomes situational. Yeah. But ultimately, you'd want to transition to a perennial. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I, I plant a lot of uh, a lot of uh, uh, warm season stuff, cool season stuff uh, to to supplement or help out. But the land needs to be in perennial. Um, I don't know if you can speak to this question. What what is the grazing potential of irrigated land uh, when you transition from farming to um, to grazing from he's got from bushels of corn per acre to stock days per acre. Uh, I, you know, it depends on where you are. I, mean, I don't know. It's just sort of how long is the spring? Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, if it that has to be one thing if you were in the north end of the of the corn belt, and another thing if you were in the deep south. Mm -hmm. Um. Do you still get to do much farming yourself, or are your energies dedicated to management? Uh, I spent about a third of my day uh, out in the in the pastures, uh, looking and, and uh, directing folks. Mm -hmm. 
a third of my day in this office doing emails and stuff I got to do. Uh-huh. It seems like about a third of the day was uh, being having company guests, customers, whatever, somebody I got to talk to or show something. Yeah. And is that the way you like it? Is that a nice balance for the way you're you're made? I'd I rather just see about the cows if I had yeah. no, but I, you know, I, I can hire somebody to do that and I can't hire anybody to do this. Uh-huh. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, are there any practices that are unique to you? Uh, like, you know, uh, management styles, th- certain things that just, you think I've got this dialed in and don't really know anybody else that's, that's doing it. You know, I don't know that we're doing anything that's particularly unique. You know, we figured out what works for us. We, we are figuring out what works for us here. You know, I've been doing, I've been practicing this on this farm, uh, the regenerative side for 25 years, and I'm still figuring it out. And when I die, uh, uh, you know, my children still have stuff they got to figure out. It's just, we'll, we'll never know it all. And, uh, and, and that's not, I don't consider that to be a failure. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Um, I like, I like that. And speaking of failures, we, uh, we're pretty vulnerable in this group. Is there anything that you would say, I'm going to save you the time of trying this because it absolutely failed for me. And this learned from my tuition paid to the school of hard knocks. Probably the biggest, fa- I mean, I've got a bunch of failures in my life. But probably the biggest one I've had lately is I went into the pasture poultry business way too big uh we had uh we got kind of drunk on success with the grass-fed beef business because of the timing and uh and i felt like uh whoa if we can do this good with beef just think how good we can do with chicken you know, people eat more chicken than beef so i spent a million dollars a little million dollars building a processing plant for pasture poultry and i couldn't sell enough chicken not just chicken, chickens, ducks, geese, guineas, whatever. Uh, I couldn't sell enough poultry to uh, operate the plant at the margin I needed for it. It just wouldn't work. And it was financially painful. But the uh, uh, luckily our beef, pork, lamb business grew to the point that I grew my red meat plant. So we'll be able to utilize that million plus dollar uh, plant I built for poultry for it, and uh, and, I, and I hope I still have some capacity to to, to be in the poultry business. I I can sell some uh, pasture poultry, but I just can't sell uh, as much as I thought I could. Mm-hmm. Who who are your primary customers? Is it direct? To consumer, or do you sell a lot wholesale? Uh, it's 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 moving quickly to whole, to to uh, retail. Uh, I was purely a wholesale provider for the first ten years, more than that, 10, 15 years. I was in business: Publix, Kroger, Whole Foods, some food service companies. 
we uh, last year we sold more online. We got an online store or order fulfillment center. I don't know if I said that or not, but we got one. Okay. We sold more product direct to consumers online than we did to our wholesale customers. Mm-hmm. And I, I see that trend continuing. I do not like the uh, shipping FedEx and UPS, and that's the only way I got to do it. So I'm looking for something better on that side of it. Uh, you know, they, nothing wrong with FedEx and UPS, but they were not designed for meat. They were designed for books and clothes and non-perishables. Sure. And I, I need a better way to get it delivered. What's What's the common weak link in a direct-to-consumer business, Will? Is it marketing? Is it production? Is it fulfillment? Where do you, what do you see that's like the thing that people fall short on? Uh, probably, uh, I guess it falls into order fulfillment, but you know, you can sell all the tenderloins you can produce and you can sell them for a lot. Uh, you, but you got to find a place to go with all that ground beef. Yeah. And, and that, that'll break you. There's been a lot of people that went broke raising cows and butchering them and selling the middle meats and freezing everything else. And wake up one morning and can't pay the bills. They may have a million or two million or three million dollars worth of inventory, but they can't pay the bills. Yeah. How have you been able to um, mitigate that? We we started out, uh, as I told you, early early in with some big grocery companies and built up a a real good uh, ground beef business. And we maintain that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's pretty key. Pretty key. You can make you can make ground beef out of anything, but you can't make a tenderloin out of anything except a tenderloin. That's right. Right. Yeah. Well, very good. Well, in just a couple minutes that we have left here, Will, are there any kind of parting thoughts that you have? Anything that um you'd like to share with this audience and, and again you know it goes out on the podcast channels and things so largely producers from throughout the united states north north south america but we have some people from australia and um even africa that have tuned into these before so this is uh, your I, I don't know that I, I got any closing thoughts i enjoyed being with y'all like i saw i got a little cold i'm sort of sniffling to apologize for that but and, and I, uh, I'm told that my accent's a little bit southern, so hopefully between the stopped-up nose and uh, a little, little on the southern side, maybe you understood some of what I said. I hope you did. Yeah, we did. I think I think the message came through loud and clear. I had to cut my video there for a minute because our internet is not ideal here on this stormy day. But um, we appreciate you, Will. We're grateful that you're doing what you're doing, the example that you're setting for many within our industry. And uh, – if you guys would go ahead and just share your appreciation to Will in the chat for his time. And and uh, we hope that you'll um, take the opportunity to go and visit him. That is on my bucket list of things to do. I've looked at some of the classes there and the timing has not worked out. I ended up going and getting my 10-day certification in California with the Savory Institute. I really wanted to go to yours, though, and uh, appreciate the good work that you are doing, Will. Thank you all for having me on. I enjoyed it. Enjoyed talking to you all. Hope you come see us.
Absolutely. Yep. Well, thanks everybody for joining us today. Uh, we'll wrap this up here. Last week we had a wonderful two day. We called it the profitable steward event. Um, if you'd like access to those recordings, um, we're going to go ahead and send out the link. It's going to be the same link that you registered on. That will give you the two days of recordings. You can go back and review that and, and, uh, take advantage of that opportunity. It's, uh, it's great to be able to join together to build a community of committed stewards. And we're thankful for those that are throughout the, throughout the world that are joining this community. And, and so we, uh, we pray for your success and we hope to see you on the next one, which actually, um, we accommodated Will's schedule. We were able to jump on here on a, a different day than normal. Tomorrow, we're going to be back on with Eunice Williams. Did you know Bud and Eunice by chance, Will? Uh, his uh, daughter and her husband have been here before. Tina uh, and Richard, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Eunice is going to be our guest for the regularly scheduled webinar, which is tomorrow evening. So if you haven't registered for that, just go check your email. It's probably in there. Um, if you need to reach out on the text and we'll, we'll get you the link. But so with that blessings to all, and we will, uh, we'll talk to everyone soon. Thank you again, Will. Thank you. Appreciate it. Take care. Bye. Thanks for joining us on the profitable steward podcast. Want to learn more about making your enterprise more profitable? Check out AgSteward on our website, www.agsteward.fyi. Here at AgSteward, we're working hard to make sure you have the latest tools and knowledge from the field of regenerative agriculture. Subscribe to our podcast to keep up with the latest info and help us spread the word by giving this video a thumbs up, sharing this information with other farmers, and as always, please join the conversation by leaving us a rating and a review so we can help you to keep growing strong.